0: then you have your Bible as well. We are going to be looking up a couple of different verses so I can uh, show you some, some, some kind of interesting ideas that we're going to kind of pick up from Paul's letter here to Timothy in chapter four. And hopefully uh, one of the goals that we have for this uh, on Wednesday nights and are during what now we call our Wednesday night study is to focus on that grow piece. Okay, so that's why we're here. Uh, is to grow in Christ, But what does that mean actually? And I want to just spend one just quick moment here. Uh, I'm going to write it down on this bottom corner. On that grow challenge, it's not just in our heads, but let's I'm never going to apologize um, for knowing things about God. But I know that a lot of people like to complain. And actually, I would say make a mountain out of a molehill in terms of, well, that's just education. That's just knowing things. We never say that when, like, that's a doctor, by the way, right? oh, sure, you just know how to cure me of my illness. That's just all in your head. Uh, (laughs) It's like, we're really great. Oh, yeah, you know how to um, really give me these incredibly technologically advanced things. It's just knowledge. But when it comes to Bible-type things, and we want to almost create this, like what's known as a false dichotomy about this, like, oh, yeah, like it would be a bad thing for us to know deep truths about God. Hopefully, we recognize the holistic nature of how God has made us. And as we pursue him, it is about knowing him. So there is a knowledge piece that we would grow in our knowledge of God. Let me quote um, the great uh, biblical textual giant Erasmus. And I know that Luther had a problem with him, but uh, he was a great man in church history, did a lot of work to help us understand how the Bible came to be. And uh, he was asked one time, How does scholarly knowledge facilitate the understanding of Scripture? Kind of one of those, are you more educated than you're worth kind of a question, right? How does scholarly knowledge facilitate the understanding of Scripture? To which Erasmus said, well, explain to me how ignorance would help. And I I, I think of that phrase a lot. Just tell me how ignorance would help. Tell me how, like, me knowing lies about God or incorrect truths about God, how is that, that going to assist me? In knowing him or even worshiping him. And so we're never going to pit knowledge against um, a heart that is obedient. I I think they should be able to work side by side. And so our ability to worship, I believe, is connected to our understanding of him. And don't just think uh, PhD or academic. Uh, To know God and to know Christ is actually also to experience him. So there is an experiential element as well. Paul says that I want to know Christ, and I want to like experience, in essence, like His sufferings, so that I might know Him. Like I want to, I want, I, I want every part of me—my my my mind and my heart and my will—to all be completely absorbed. And who God is. And so that's a big part of this. So our grow element is there's a knowledge element that that comes naturally with it. Did you know that God is? And then we could begin to describe him. And then the second piece that we talk about on that grow piece is obedience. That it is a heart that knows who God is and then a heart that follows him. And that's what Jesus calls people to do. He doesn't say, I want you to know these ten things about me. He says, follow me. And then we learn from him. And we learn about him. And then by learning about him, we learn about ourselves. And by learning about him, we learn how God designed us and made us to be. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ to grow in our understanding and obedience to him. And we don't only do that through the scriptures. But the scriptures become a primary way to inform us and to also keep us honest and keep us in check. And that's clearly an idea that we're going to see uh, presented in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 4. So, idea number one. Idea number two, before we hit the text, is this that when we read the Bible, and we're going to be looking at just a few verses tonight. But as you leave from here and as you have opportunities to look at maybe this same section or you decide to look at another section, let me give you some great, just three real quick tips on how to read your Bible, okay? The first one would be this. You need to read your Bible contextually, meaning that when you're, when you're looking at the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, uh, you don't bring all of the ideas that you have from all the other places first to this particular text. You let the text, you let the words in the verses, you let that be the primary instruction of the, of the, of the moment. Because sometimes when your first step is to bring everything else into it, you can miss what this text itself and uniquely is saying. If every text is only a composition of all the other texts, it really breaks down, okay? So the first thing that we do is we look at what Matthew is saying, and we look at Jesus' words right here. We don't just disqualify Jesus' words by all these other Bible verses that say he can't mean this. No, we first look at the verses within the text, so we look at it contextually. Then after that, we begin to look at the Bible holistically, We look at the Bible holistically. So after we look at the verse and we say, okay, well, here is what the verse says. And to give you a good idea of what we got to be careful doing is look at verse 10. Verse 10 on your sheet says this, for this end, we we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so we allow the text first to speak for itself and we are going to look at, the, at verse 10 and say, what does verse 10 say? Don't go, well, oh, you know what it can't say. Whoa, 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 wait a second. If you're always telling the text what it can't say first, how do you know what it is saying? First we let it say what it says, and then we balance it out against other ideas. So, And there are difficult texts. We've already looked at one that talks about women being saved through childbearing in chapter 3. I mean, women being saved through child, or in chapter two, actually, women being saved through childbearing. What does that mean? And our first, well, here's what it can't mean. Well, listen, I, I'm telling you, I expect to kind of get there, but we don't first begin by looking at a text by saying what it can't be. We first let the text say what it can be. And then the next step is to look at the text Holistically in terms of how other verses begin to shape it. Well, but the Bible actually teaches that childbearing in no way saves, i.e., you can either believe in Jesus Christ or have children. you got one way or the other to be saved. The Bible nowhere gives us such an option, okay? But when we look at the text, we start with the text, and then we we, we move out and look at it. This one here, uh, these are, I, I think this is always step one, step two. This third one kind of happens in both of these. It is really good to read the Bible. I had a professor who used to say he didn't like the phrase naturally, or he didn't like the phrase literally. Um, I know that the Bible uh, it can, can really be discredited or discarded or uh, minimalized by saying, oh, well, that's a figure of speech or that's just a figurative uh, way of looking at the Bible. And when we do that to things like, was there really uh, a Moses or was there really an Abraham or was there really a Jesus, it really can be a destructive way to look at the Bible, Okay. Um, and so there has been a debate over the last hundred or so years between look, reading the Bible literally or figuratively, okay? And I had a professor that really helped me, and his kind of his phrase was that we, we really need to look at the Bible and read it naturally. We read it, need, it, read it, need to read it naturally. What he means by that is is that the Bible itself will give you indications as to whether or not you need to read this figuratively or literally, Like, it really will help you understand it. So if a literal person is describing a literal situation and then uses a figure of speech to do so, we kind of know to figure out, oh, okay, he's talking about X. So if you're watching a newscast and it actually says the lions beat the tigers, you're not going, oh, I'd like to see that. Was that in Africa where a lion beat a tiger? No, it's ESPN. It's actually like... Tigers and Lions, those are baseball, football. Those are something else that's going to be... Actually, it's a football and a baseball team. But when you look at it in Canada, they're both. But when you have this issue, you're looking at it and you're saying, oh, okay, but the context helped me understand how that was going to be played out. And so to read something naturally is really, really helpful. And that way we don't get caught up in this literal versus figurative debate. So, for example, when you're reading the book of Revelation, how many of you read it and it says, and behold, and I saw this vision... And you're going, oh, okay, so this is a vision. It's going to come with, 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 with figurative expressions. Here is the apocalypse. Okay, so this is a kind of a genre that's going to lead towards that, right? So that makes total sense. And then Jesus walked upon the shore. Okay, this is a gospel. I've written, written these things to you, Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of what you have heard and what you have believed And Okay, that sounds like history. That doesn't sound like a made-up fictitious story. So the natural lending and the natural leading of the text will help you understand how to read things. And so don't forget that, that as you move forward, start with the context and then look at other verses to help you understand what that text might mean. And then read the text very naturally as you walk through and you will find that, you, here's what I would, uh, I would argue, you can understand far more of the Bible than you know. And then the, the, the last thing I would say, uh, just so you go, well, where do I begin doing this? I'm a big fan of beginning in the Gospels. I'm a big fan of always always kind of having one foot in the Matthew Mark Luke or John series, so that you can know who Jesus Christ is, and then venture out from there. Venture out from there. So we are in First Timothy chapter six tonight, and uh, the first few verses, I want to just kind of go back a little bit. Um, it's just good. I'm, su- I'm sure you've slept since last week, and so you don't remember exactly how the, the previous section ended. And so Paul has written down um, some instructions to Timothy beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and he is warning against some, some problems that some people are uh, now, uh, now, now giving teachings that have been set out by hypocritical liars, uh, teachings that are taught by demons people whose conscience has been seared. He goes on and describes um, how, how bad this is. And he says, they do things like they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God has created. So he lists all of these doctrinal ideas. And then in, in, uh, in, in continuing in verse three, he says, they, uh, they require abstinence from food that God created to receive the thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, again, I said last week, is that word to believe and to know actually the believe is an uh an adjective describing a people so it is literally it's not people who believe and know it's believers who know okay so it's describing kind of who who he's who he's talking about here and it's believers believers who know the truth verse four for everything god created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of god so we've got this idea of knowing the truth and now we've got this idea of the word of god this is what guides us. This is what governs us. This is what settles us. So that when there becomes a question, when Jim says something or Paul says something or, or, or somebody stands up and teaches something, we have the word to go to to ask, is Jim right? Is Paul right? So when Jim says, you shouldn't marry, I mean, we're coming up on a series, um, and the series is going to be on manhood, womanhood, sexuality, singleness, marriage, and divorce, And as I have uh, finished writing the first message on the issue of manhood, I, I just couldn't help but just feel the weight that when I stand up on Sunday and I begin to preach on this topic about manhood, I mean, well over half, like most people already have their mind set up about what it means to be a man, don't you? Like, are you going to be coming Sunday going, ah, I don't know what it means to be a man. I'm really looking forward to this, Jim. Thank you for helping me with that. I'm, I'm kind of coming here blank slate. I really don't know what it means to be a man. Like, my father really hasn't told me anything, and society hasn't really given me any indication. Um, I've not been soci- uh, sociologically influenced by my peers um, or by the television shows that I watch. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm wanting to learn, teach me. But we're going to show up on Sunday, and everybody's already got an idea. And if I begin to speak, well, the Bible teaches this about what it means to be a man, and this is what it actually means to be a man in the home, and this is what it, be, it means to be a man. Well, I mean, that's, that's what Jim thinks, you know. I mean, and, and, and he's using those Bible verses, but he's using those Bible... I mean, how many of you believe... Don't raise your hand on this one, okay? But how many of you believe that you can just make the Bible say anything it wants? Weirdly enough, we all kind of believe that. Do, do you realize what that means if you believe that? Which, by, by the way... I could argue that case, that we can make the Bible say anything that it wants. But I would also argue that you could prove beyond a reasonable doubt, and I want to stick to the word reasonable, that you could disprove those things which the Bible really doesn't teach very well. I'm not saying everybody will believe it. I'm saying there will still be those people who will go, well, no, 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 no. The Bible clearly teaches that we shouldn't marry. And I, I would guarantee that there would be a few people that would believe that. But I believe that the scriptures themselves and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit itself will lead us to that truth. Do you realize how skeptical we are in terms of the truth? Scarily so. And that's intimidating as a preacher who's going to try to stand up on Sunday and preach something which is a little more than, hey, I got a few suggestions for you. Kind of hope maybe you'll give me some kind of grace on this one and kind of work with me a little bit. How do we speak? Like, what if we're completely wrong on sexuality? Or at least mostly wrong. What if we're completely jacked on our view of marriage and divorce? Like, what if we're so crazy to actually believe the Bible teaches that we marry for love? Like, what if we believe that? Can you believe that, what would, what would it be like if we believe that marriage is designed by God to be te- two people who are like pursuing each other and in love with each other, and so they decided to get married? What if we believe that as a society? Could you imagine how crazy that would be? Like, you know the Bible actually doesn't teach that, right? And that's what we all believe. It sounds miserable the other way, and the Bible doesn't even teach that. So a lot of our views are misguided. I want you to kind of get a feel for that because Paul says, hey, Timothy, take the words of truth, and you go back to the church, and you show them from the scriptures that we accept all the foods that have been given to us because God made them, and they are to be received with thanksgiving. And, and you don't let them tell you that we should abstain from marriage. You, you stand up with the word of God and you tell people that that idea of abstinence from marriage is from a demon. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, No, those might be a little easier for me because we like bacon, right? So you're not going to fight me on that one. But imagine I had some things to share with you on Sunday that you didn't already believe. And here's the thought. So then how teachable are you? And how teachable am I? You don't think I have to first wrestle with this? You don't think I'm sitting in my office going, am I just regurgitating things I already know? So before I yell at you, I've had to sit in my office and yell at myself. I can't just keep teaching the things that I already know, like somehow the word of God has already been decided in a way that my culture is in perfect unison with the way of God. I'll tell you, I love to to ask our people this question. When was the last time you and Jesus had a good fight? Like a really good disagreement. And if you can't think of the last time, I want you to just think of what that means. It means that you and Jesus agree on everything. Like Peter couldn't say that. Right? The disciples had to, to hear some tough words from Jesus. Have you ever had to hear some tough words from Jesus? Do you have that? And that's what Jesus means by he really wants us to have a teachable heart. Unless you become like a little child. Unless you recognize your limitations and your vulnerability. Unless you recognize the fullness of who I am to speak truth into your life. And so many of us are like preachers who say, i got a really good sermon. I just need to find a text. And many of us are, hey, I've got a really, really good biblical idea. I just need to find some Bible verses to back it up. Man, and I mean this literally, may God have mercy on us. And I hope that you feel the joy of being uncomfortable as you're looking at these words. And this is what Paul has sent Timothy to do. So the truth in verse 3, the word of God in verse 5, set the agenda for what Timothy is doing. So in verse 6, Paul says, if you put these things, what are these things? The things are the truth and the word. If you put these things before the brothers, and the word there is anthropos, meaning not just brothers, but I believe like the full humanity would be a good way to describe it, For all, before all of the people, which is Timothy's assignment. I want you to stand before the congregation, and I want you to put these things in front of them. You will be a, and the, the, word, use, the word good is used here twice, and I want you to just kind of get it sense of this. You will be a good servant. The, servant. the word servant there is diakone, which we would see that was the word deacon, but it actually is the word servant. It could be the word minister. You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, which, so I'm a servant. Who am I a servant of? And it's good to remember this. I, I hope that you know that I love you, but I'm, I'm not your servant first. I'm actually even here to serve you, but I'm not your servant first. Like when I had the call of God on my life, the call of God on my life was me to be faithful to Him, not you, not me. Like, yeah, I'm in the you category, I'm not in the Christ category. So when I had the call of God on my life, the call of God on my life was not, Jim's a people person, Jim really likes people. Actually, I do like people a lot. I love hanging out with people and talking with people. And I, have a, I really do kind of have a, just a natural desire to help people and to assist people. But when that takes like the, the, the center stage and now all of a sudden I'm a minister of people or for people, I'm really not. I am a minister of, and notice again, without making too much of this, there is something to be made. Christ, title, Jesus. Emphasis on Christ. On the Messiah, on the King, Messiah, the Anointed One, on the Messiah Jesus—that's who you are. So you put these things in front of people, but it's going to make them sad. I know, but you're going to be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Well, they're going to—they're going to—they're going to not like this. They're going to—they're going to be mad. I know, but you don't have to worry about that. Like, in in the end, like, who is your boss? What, what I love is um, there's one of our, one of our uh, former elders here, Jimmy Hill, was a real big fan when I got here, real big fan of like the, uh, the organizational chart. And he would always say organizational charts are really, really helpful because they just kind of create these lines of responsibilities and who's over who. He's a real big fan of it. And, and, and we have, and I hope it's more than just on this, in our, in our policy and procedures manual, we actually have, guess who's on the top of the org chart? It's not the elders. You know who it is? It's God. And, and you could just, well, you know, that's God. It's kind of like when we say, well, pray for you, we put it down, but we really don't mean it or do it. Well, no, we should mean it and do it, first of all, when it comes to prayer. And secondly, like God really is the one. So therefore, if you will put these things before the brothers and sisters you will be a good servant a good minister of Christ Jesus what's needed he continues being trained that is actually in the present tense which means there is something that has happened but it is constantly happening now it is this ongoing being trained you have been you are being and you're going to continue to be trained and that word in the NIV is brought up which I like that idea. I like thinking of our three boys and now our fourth boy, and we're bringing them up, we're teaching them, we're training them. And, and another word that, that no translation really uses this, but this is the kind of the, the, the beginning of the Greek idea for this word is not just training, like you and I think about it in terms of like physical exercise, which this text is going to be, but literally like nourished. That what Paul is describing here is that you, being nourished, how do good ministers of Christ Jesus, how do we get trained? How are we brought up? How are we, in essence, nourished? What is it that causes us to grow strong and to grow confident and to grow um, uh, capable with what we are doing and leading God's people and being trained in the words of the faith, which goes back to verses 3 and verse 5. And there are, by the way, I had to include this and I even did it in orange. I'm a big orange fan. Again, orange is our philosophy that we stress quite strongly here. Um, It's not anything anybody came up with. Actually, it's the way God intended it, reading Deuteronomy 6. But we actually see the orange idea very clearly in Timothy's life. And Paul brings it up here. These are the different ways that Paul describes the nourishment of his minister, his partner in ministry, I should say, his partner in ministry, who's a minister of Christ Jesus, Timothy, number one, his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 and in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, you see Paul describing the fact that his mother and his grandmother were the ones who trained him up in his understanding of who God is. You will also see in Acts chapter 16, verse 2, and then throughout the book of Acts, and I think you could even see it in in these letters, that you have just church life trains him up. Just being involved in the church. I grew up in a really, 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 really tiny church. And um, church life was kind of like uh, the Sunday morning service in our house. Uh, there, was, um, there was like meals that we had together, but we lived kind of in a, in a bigger town, in a, in a bigger city, and so in, in terms of like how our faith and our life like worked, it was we don't say bad words, we, we try to be kind, we, try, we listen to our teachers, we get good grades, um, and we go to church was kind of the way that it was, uh, I, I guess, generally taught, right? Um, fast forward that, I'm grateful for my parents, truly am, but I'm grateful for also a, a moment In my boys' lives, and I don't even know how well they they remember this. Andrew and I, I think, remember this time very, very well. I am now in in grad school, and we are uh, in the middle of a a corn field on one side, beans on the other. That's the great state of Illinois. might be other states too, but Illinois is corn on one side, bean on the other. Next year, this one's corn, that one's beans. Following year, this one's corn, that one's beans. And so you can always remember if it's an odd year or an even year, depending on what sides of of the church have corn or beans. And I'm not used to living in a city that had 250 people in it. And I'm not used to, like, hunting. I still had never fired a gun. I'm um, not used to farming. I've used uh, sermon illustrations about planting your crops with a combine and have a whole group of people laugh at me. I have no idea what this is like. So I'm a city kid, and I'll never forget going because so-and-so, I can't even remember his name, but so-and-so needed wood for the winter. And I literally am thinking, where am I? I'd never heard of wood for the winter. Like, what do you mean wood for the winter? Well, we need wood for the winter. Okay, what are we gonna do? And the church is gonna get together. We're gonna go cut down trees and take wood to so-and-so's house because he needs wood for the winter. And I think, isn't this like 1995? Who still needs wood for the, and there was a man. His wife was struggling with cancer and we went into this yard. My son was there, he was really, really little. And we went and we cut wood. And I remember thinking, now this is church. Like this is church. It just, it, it felt so real to me. And that had never been a part of my church life. I would never really had an opportunity to do that. I, it, it was really kind of a sad thing. I just still remember standing in that guys, I'd never seen a log splitter before. I was like the coolest thing in the world. So you put the wood there and the thing comes and it splits, this is incredible. Why aren't we doing this every day, you know? And then after about five hours of doing that, I'm like, I don't want to do this every day. But for the first 20 minutes, I was like a kid on Christmas. See, that's church. Caring for someone who needs wood in the winter. So there's so many elements. This is why if all you experience of Sunnybrook is this room and Sunday morning, do you understand what you don't get about the Christian life? If you've never been on a mission trip, you don't get the Christian life. If you've never had to work through a difficult relationship in a life group, you don't get the Christian life. If you never have had to beg for someone's, I'm not talking your mom and your dad or a brother or a sister. I'm talking a brother, sister, in Christ. If you've never had to beg for their forgiveness, or if you've never had to feel like you're about to be like split apart because you're going to have to forgive someone and it means to let it go and it just feels like you're losing a part if you've never done that you've never experienced a certain part of the christian life think about how much god desires for us so one of the ways in which we are nourished and trained and paul does this for timothy is he involves him in church life that's why I'm so beyond the do I have to go to church to be a Christian. I'm so beyond the, 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 the immaturity of that statement. That is so not what we're talking about. So not what we're talking about. And Timothy is involved at that level and in that way he has been trained and nourished. And then the third way that we actually see is Paul himself. Training him, mentoring him, leading him. So you've got just the, that general church life where it's like, hey, Timothy, I want you to do this. Trust the Holy Spirit. He'll lead you through this. And then Paul saying, watch my example. As I follow the example of Christ, follow me. Timothy, you've seen my examples. Do you see how I care? And that is how you get incredible statements about Timothy. He's one of the, one of the people I love the most in all of the Bible, actually. And my favorite statement about Timothy is found in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, where the apostle Paul gives four pictures of people who live the way they should live. The first one was Jesus who just is wonderful, the best. He's my favorite person in the whole Bible. Um, But Jesus uh, emptied himself and gave himself up and became a servant to to death on the cross. And we need to have that attitude as we love one another. And then he says, I did that way, Paul does. Then he lists Epaphroditus, and then he lists Timothy. And on the Timothy one, he says this, I have no one else like him who genuinely cares for the interests of Christ. For everybody else, he usually looks out for themselves, but not him. He looks out for you. And he associates the people's interests and the interests of Christ. He says they're the same thing. This is what Timothy does. He cares about you. And by caring about you, Timothy actually believes he's caring for Jesus, which is what Jesus said. Didn't he say that? For when you have clothed someone who is naked, when you have visited someone, like you've done these things for who? Like, you do know, like, we built two houses for Jesus the other day. Don't know if you got to be a part of that, but we built a couple houses for Jesus. I want you to think about that. And this is a huge part of Paul's training, which involves grandmoms and moms and the church, and then people like Paul. Trained up in the words of faith, and not only are you a good servant, but also of the good doctrine, the agathos doctrine, the good doctrine that you have followed. And I'm not gonna write it because I've written it a million times. Orthodoxy, good doctrine. Orthopraxy, good practice. And they go side by side. Verse seven, have nothing. Okay, now if you notice above that, you'll actually see and maybe you'll go, what are these three little tiny letters? I don't know if you can read them. They're actually I-M-P, stands for imperative, the imperative, which is a command. There's actually 12, which is a lot for a few verses. Paul is going to list for Timothy a series of commands. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Um, Certain translations in the past have called them like old wives' tales, Basically, they are ideas or teachings about life that have no basis or reality. They are like a vapor, they're like smoke, they, they really have no substance to them, and that kind of teaching that has no substance but is cliche and really doesn't have any full oomph behind it needs to be, he says, like avoided. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. I, I, I can be I have been in the past I think I've grown up a little bit in the past I've like oh, man, I'll, I'll, I'd like to argue anything not that I thought I'd want to argue everything but I'm willing for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of good biblical teaching I'm willing to address anything and I'm beginning to understand my father's wisdom who, whenever I would um, come home and I would have some crazy hair-brained doctrine or philosophical idea, um, I'll never forget, I would, I would want to try to like spark some interest in my dad, you know, and so I was younger and I had this brilliant idea and I would come in the house and I would say, hey, dad, guess what? And then I would like say something and he would say, well, that's just because you're not very educated. <laughs> well, it's just because you haven't been thinking, son what do you mean? I I want to debate him. And he's like, no, I'm not debating that with you. It's not even worth it. What do you mean it's not worth it? You owe me. Let's talk this out. And there were times where my dad just would have nothing. And my dad knows this verse. No, son, I'm not going to go down that road because that road does not even deserve to be going down. I thought every road deserved to be walked. And what we're actually saying is that By giving certain, not all, by the way. I know that there are people that want to use this on really good topics. How is Jesus both God and man? You know what? That's the problem with the church. They spend their time with those kind of deep things, and really it's just about love, man. No, 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 no. Listen. Like how Jesus is incarnate is a worthy discussion. What it means For God to take on flesh and then to die in our place, I believe, is a worthy discussion. But then when we talk about it and talk about it and talk about it, I promise, too much you will step into crazy town. You will step into irreverent and silly myth when you take it too far. And understanding that wisdom and trusting even the Spirit's guidance on that is something we need to grow in and grow in our understanding, and that is why I'm always looking to. I still have about four or five. Um, sadly enough, as I get older, they're getting older, and some of them have gone on to be with Jesus. But I still have a number of like key people in my life, and I, I can want to know complicated questions. I want to know deep ideas. And I will ask certain people who are further down the road from me, who are much wiser than me, is this a wise discussion or should I not have this discussion? And I will follow their lead. I will have what is known as the humility of orthodoxy, which is like I'm not the one that gets to decide every idea, but there are people much smarter and wiser than I who have already answered some of these questions so there are some things that are not worthy for us to discuss. And there are some things for us that are worthy to discuss. But Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, so here's the counter. Rather, imperative number two, train yourself. Now, this is a different word than the word uh, used earlier, train. Even though, this is why you have to be careful. Just because there are those two English words, I had to go back and look. Is that the same word, nourish? No, it's really not. This is the word, if you kind of look off to the side, the word for discipline, you probably don't know the Greek, but it is the word that we would get for gymnasium. Like the idea of like training, and he's about to use a gymnasium type metaphor. So he says, have nothing to do with the reverent silly myth, but rather instead to train up yourself. Command number two, avoid those, train, train yourself for godliness, which by the way is to be like God, and then to be more like God. One is, what is he like? This is why if you don't know what God is like, then, then how do you know what, what, what attributes you're supposed to be? If you don't know that God is patient, patient in what way? Like God's like patient with sin? So like he excuses it? Is that what you're saying? Like God's excuses sin? No, not at all actually. God is patient with sin, calling us to repentance so that he might forgive us in our brokenness and in our humility so that when our head is lowered in brokenness that he lifts us and he exalts us from our humility because we recognize who he is. In that way, God is patient. Because I know a lot of people that are, man, I'm really, really patient. What do you mean by patient? Well, I just, I don't really care what people do. That's not patience. That's just being apathetic. And that's not a biblical attribute. That's not a a biblical uh, idea that comes from the nature of God. God is not apathetic about our sin. He is patient with us. And in the midst of that patience, he is wooing us. He is disciplining us. Do you see why it becomes so critical for us? He says, listen, I want you to train yourself for godliness. Now, here's what I want to... This is kind of my challenge. came earlier in the night than I th- expected it to. So it'll, I'll bring it up, up at the end again. But there, there really is no biblical or no Greek word for commitment or committed. It's just, if as, you, as we read through it, it's, it's really not a word. It's more like train yourself. It's that word. Um, it's stay away from. It's, it's that word. But it's not you need to be committed. It's all of these other things. It's like they, he describes what commitment looks like. He doesn't just tell us to be committed. But commitment, you know what it looks like? It looks like avoiding these things and being devoted to these things. And so we're going to see it unfold. We're going to see it develop. But I want to just ask you, like, what are you committed to? Especially in the area of training. What are you committed to? If I said to you, for example, you know, I'm not going to teach my kids how to hit a baseball. How many of you would think, like, I'm an irresponsible parent? I guarantee you, you would be like, like, I don't even know if you can be a Christian and not play baseball. Like, can you be a Christian and not play baseball? You know, I don't, I, I really don't. I'm not going to teach my kid to read. I think reading's overrated. I'm not going to teach my kid to read. How many of you would go, okay, like, that's almost as bad as not teaching him how to hit a baseball, I can't believe that. First baseball, now reading? What else? Right? So what are you committed to? Because I, I know a lot of us. I'm going to be talking about what it means to be a man. Many of us, what it means to be a man is to teach our young boys how to be men. How do you be a man? You hit a baseball. And I had to just ask, like, so whatever you're training your kids in, so what are you training your kids in? And then I just have to ask this question, like, When was the last time godliness was like the category that you were using? I I just had to stop and ask, did I spend more time teaching my kids to catch, to hit? I I remember being deeply concerned that one of my sons, I won't say who it is because it's Max, and he hates it when I use him as an illustration, but there was a time in Max's life, Joe, Shauna, you remember this, we didn't think he would ever be able to hit a baseball, He finally gets a hit, runs to first, gets so excited, steps off the bag, gets tagged out. Didn't even matter. He hit the ball. But I remember finding Manny Cervantes, who is just a guy who is a really good baseball player, and he really loves teaching kids how to hit. And I remember Sunday after church, taking him out, and I remember doing that a number of times. Because why? Because I just, like, I don't know if he will be a complete human being if he doesn't hit the ball, right? How many of you have done that as dads? Anybody taking their kids out? Am I the only one? I'm the only one. Wow, okay. Anyway, there's this thing called baseball. And uh, like when have you ever been, when have I ever been that passionate about godliness? About like reading the scriptures, like, I really, I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't. And I, I love to ask this question when, when, when your son comes to college. I used to ask this question a lot. Like, did your dad ever sit you down and teach you how to read the Bible? Did he ever teach you these things? No, he told me to read the Bible. If I told my kid to go hit a ball, you would call me irresponsible. Going back to orange. Now, what does he say? Notice where this goes, by the way. And, and by the way, I am deeply convicted by that statement. Um, our, my, again, my youngest son, Max, is at Ozark right now. And just to, they, When you go into Ozark, you take a test on testing your Bible knowledge. And uh, he did really well in a couple of areas. And I thought this was kind of funny. After he got his grades, he, 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 here's what he said. He called home and he said, I really need to thank like, our youth pastor and blah, blah, blah for helping me with that. That's what he said didn't thank me didn't thank his mom i i really need to go back and talk to ryan i really need to go back and talk to drew i really need to go back and talk to miss julie because man i learned way more than i thought i knew you know so i i wish i could say to you man i spent way more time teaching my kids biblical and, and biblical uh, interpretive philosophies or ways of studying the bible but I could have done much better. I mean, I, I remember being really, really, really worried about him not hitting a ball and moving hell in high water to make sure. It, what if I had that same commitment and passion? Man. Why does he say this? Look at verse 8 For while bodily training is of some value, so bodily training, some value. Godliness is of value in every way, literally all value. So some value, all value, bodily training, some value, godliness in every way as it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. One of the most beautiful biblical ideas is this, is that our salvation that we have in Christ starts... And so I still have a picture, actually, of, of, of Max and Jay and uh, Jacob right in front when they got baptized. I still have a picture of it. And, and, and that was in many ways the, it wasn't the very start, but that was a big start of their journey, of Max's journey. And that journey begins there. That's, it's, it's not like that's the finish line. No, that's, the, that's where the journey begins. And one of the reasons why I've tried to stress to my boys, or just to people in general, but this whole thing seems to be, a, be about teaching our kids. Um, one of the reasons why I stress my kids, you want to know God, is because you'll be spending eternity with him. And actually, the Bible doesn't teach that once you see him, you're going to know everything about him. I don't think the Bible actually teaches that at all. You're not going to die, and then all of a sudden, it's the matrix, and God's going to deposit everything about himself in your brain. I, I, I believe that the Bible actually teaches that we are going to grow in our understanding and like I really want to know him. I want to know about him. I'm, I'm not trying to get ahead of you. I'm just, I'm telling you like I really love him and I really want to know him. Even my, if you were to understand, if you were to even understand like what my calling looks like, it's not even so much like I don't want people to go to hell as much as it is like I really want to know God. And the reason why I, kind of an overflow of my knowledge of who God is, is the love for the lost or a love for the saved. But it's my love for him, which everything begins. And this is what he is saying, is that it is both in this life, so I'm gonna have some benefit in this life in knowing God, and then, hear me, and then there'll be a benefit of knowing God in the next life, which to me, you go, well, duh. No, there's a benefit of knowing God in the next life by knowing him in this life. No, this is not. This is an American, more Western, an American Western idea that all I got to do is get to heaven. Isn't that what it really is all about? All I got to do is get to heaven. That is so not the issue ever, ever. It is about glorifying Him, and the reason. Imagine if I just my marriage was just getting married. August nineteenth, nineteen eighty nine. That's all it really was. I got her to say yes, that's it. The rest of it, who cares? Who cares about Andrea? Who cares about the kids we've made? Who cares about that? I got married. Okay, that's just, how many of you that just sounds ridiculous? And how many live their life of Christ, with Christ like that? My salvation, I did done good on that and now I'm, what, what else matters? I mean, the Bible does not give you a You're going to heaven, therefore nothing really matters picture. You you did not get that. It's like I love to say to even my Jewish friend who has some very weird views about the Bible. Just show me where you got that idea from here. That's all I want to know. Tell me where you got that from here. And Christian, tell me where you got the idea that getting to heaven is really all it's about. Show me where Jesus taught that. Show me where Paul seems to describe life like, hey, as long as we're getting to heaven, that's really what it's all about. So not what it's all about. And so he describes, listen guys, we have to have a commitment. It's not about being good. It's not so that God would love us. It is an overflow or an offshoot of the training that has begun in us and how it keeps on going. Verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. And there's a question about whether the saying has been previously mentioned or is about to be mentioned I think it has previously mentioned. I think the good saying is that bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of all value. I think that's the saying. Verse ten, for to this end we toil and strive. So again, looking at these ideas of this commitment, to this end we toil and strive. And notice the reason. Why do we toil and strive? Why do I work so hard to know Christ and to grow in obedience to him? Why do I desire so much for my life to fade away into the life of Jesus Christ? Well, because you don't want to go to hell. Is that what it is? So my brother-in-law still thinks that everything is because I'm still afraid that I'm going to go to hell. I so am not worried about hell. I really am not. My, My life is hidden in God in Christ, with God in Christ. Okay, so that's not what I'm trying to do. And by any stretch of the imagination, why do we toil and strive then if we're already saved? Look at what he says: because we have our hope set on the living God. Where's your hope? It is set on the. And this is the second time. Remember, actually, in First Timothy three fifteen, it describes the living God. Do you remember what that's about? Do you remember? We don't have dead idols. We don't have lifeless, can't hear. Why do we pray to God? Because he's alive. That's why we pray to him. Why do you talk to him? Because he's alive. Like he's living and responding right now. God has thoughts about us and about what we're doing and about where we're going. He's, he's not an idea. He is a real being. And that's so crazy to say because his name is I am a being. His name literally is I am. And we are arguing whether or not he is. I just, I think it's laughable. Look at this. Why do we toil and strive? Because our hope is already set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, there are those who look at this text and say, of all peace, the savior of all, especially those who believe. And go, see, this is how this text showing that God is going to save everybody. It's called universalism. God is going to save everybody. He's a savior of all, especially those who believe. Saved all and especially these people, okay? Now, that's when we look at the text, and here's one of the fun things that you have to do. You have to do your best in English, okay? Step number one, do your best in English, and then realize it wasn't written in English, Okay, that's that's uh, always frustrating. I get people all the time, tell me I have to learn Greek. No, you don't have to learn Greek. Just don't make a big deal out of it in English until you know whether or not it's supported by the Greek or the Hebrew. That's all I'm saying. The word there actually is better translated, not especially, but here's the better translation for it. In particular, or I mean, Paul uses this in a number of cases, you can take a look at it, Galatians 6.10, Philippians 4.22, 1 Timothy 5.8, Titus 1.10, where Paul uses this phrase and he is describing something and then he says, he uses the same Greek word, uh, I, I want you to bring to me my books and he uses this Greek word and then he says the parchments. And it's just a word describing, it's sometimes used the word like, it's just a word that means like mostly, sometimes in the Greek, but it's really namely. It's what it's actually doing here. So the idea of universalism is not supported by this text at all. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. What I mean by that is, those people who believe. This fits, see? But, I, but here's the beauty of it. I didn't get this to get here. This becomes a great text to actually help me in other places, okay? Like I had to first deal with this text. I had to interpret the text and even the Greek language of the text takes care of itself. So this isn't actually just my theology that blends into this. Actually the grammar of the verse helps and takes care of it. That's kind of what made me think, I need to teach this again. So in particular, beautiful. Paul actually says we need to take care of everybody and then he describes who he means, particularly that he wants people to be taking care of in Galatians 10 or Galatians 6. And it unfolds from there. Verse 11. And now the imperatives are going to start flowing. Imperative. Command. Imperative. And teach these things. These doctrinal truths. These, uh, these, these, these quests for godliness. Command and teach these things. Commands number, I think, two and three. Next one: let no one despise you for your youth. By the way, he's in the, his 30s. So I know that that doesn't sound even very young, and you might meet a lot of people now that are going, "Can you believe I've already hit middle age, I'm 30?" And I'm thinking, well, if that's true, I think I'm dead, I'm 48. But he would have been in his 30s, and definitely in that culture, there was uh, more of a kind of a delayed appreciation for, um, uh, for who, a, who a man should be or what age to be. And so he, Timothy, we know, is about in his 30s during this particular time period. And I love the fact that he has this old message, and, and this is the other part. I think, I think you need to be careful, speaking now to the church, you need to be really careful dismissing someone because they are young or they are old. Paul sends Timothy and says, let no one look down on you because, hey, by the way, Timothy's right. Timothy's right. Jesus was in the temple and he was preaching. He was 12. And they probably didn't really think much of him. They were amazed by him, but they probably didn't think much of him because he was, but he's Jesus. Okay? So be really, really careful finding, and this is what we usually do. We try to find reasons to not believe people. Be very careful. So, Timothy is being told, do not let people despise you because of your youth. Let me just warn you, don't despise people because they're young or old or whatever it is. Don't don't dismiss old people. Don't dismiss young people. The Bible actually teaches, talking about the Holy Spirit, but I think it could be said for all truth. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. But in everything that is evaluated, cling to that which is good, avoid evil. Take it on its own terms. Don't say he's young or he's old or she's young or she's old or he's a she and she's a he. It doesn't matter. If it's the truth, it's coming. I mean, there was a donkey just prophesying in the Old Testament. And uh, it would have been good for him to listen to his donkey. He ended up dead. Great story from the Old Testament. So let no one despise you for your youth. Here's another one. But set the believers an example. Literally the word there is be. Be <laughs> an example List these things. In speech, in conduct, the Greek word for conduct is life. In your conduct, in your life. So the way that you talk, in your conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity, which is what we actually see in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Set an example. Now, a a big deal was made, and I just have a few seconds to to try to help you understand the difference. And some of you are going to go, I didn't even understand what the difference was. I'm totally okay with that. There's a debate as to whether or not Timothy is told to be an example for others to follow, or whether he's not, he's just supposed to be an example. Just be. Be. And um, I'm, I'm actually more on the second one, actually. I'm beginning to wonder if it is our utilitarian uh, desire that everything has to have a usefulness to it. If it doesn't have a usefulness, we don't even know, what, like, why are we doing that? I don't know why it's useful. And I think it's hurting us, to be honest with you. We're so interested in the utilitarian, right? The way, the usefulness of everything, that I think we end up giving up on a lot of things. And the more that I look at even the, even the structure of this text, I, I, I really believe, and there, it could, by the way, when I am, when I just be this way and I live this way, basically I think what Paul is describing is this is what, you, you need to be an example. That's what you need to be. You need to be an example. And then by the way, there'll be people that will follow you and that's why you need to be an example. He really is stressing that. Like, no, if anybody, here's the reason why I think It matters. Like, I need to be that way if, like, you follow or not. There's a big debate right now that's kind of raging um, around Andy Stanley uh, on some comments that he made. And I, and I don't know if you've heard about this. I actually even agree with his comments. I'm not even going to go down that road. It would totally derail us. I even agree with his comments. But as we were debating it in our, in our, in our retreat this past weekend or this past week, um, but I, I really question some of his ideas about, But you don't understand, we got to do everything that we can to try to reach people. We got to do everything that we can. Now, here, I love what Paul says about being all things to all men, so by all means we might save some. I like that. But sometimes we fail to just be. We're so worried about is anybody else coming? Is anybody else coming? Oh, they're not coming. We should probably change what we're doing. I don't think it's working. Do you think it's working? I don't think it's working. I think we need to change everything. I think we need to change. And I love how Paul doesn't seem to be as worried about the following as he is about the being. And I see this happening in churches. I see this happening in my heart. I'm more worried about if anybody is following than being. And I think Paul is saying, I need you to be this. And hear me, Paul wants people to follow. He tells people to follow him. Verse 13, until I come... Another imperative, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture above the word Scripture. Do you see what it says? N-I-G. Does anybody know what that means? You'll find it in your concordance. N-I-G. What does it mean? Not in Greek. There's no, there's no word for Scripture in this text. It literally is, if you were to read it, do not neglect, or sorry, um, devote yourself to reading. But obviously, what are they reading? The scripture. Devote yourself to reading, to exhortations. And the word there for exhortations is a word that is elsewhere translated encouragement. or So number one, it is the word of God. And then number two, it is an encouragement. And let me just remind you of this. This is a real challenge to me. What does it mean to encourage someone? Make them feel good about themselves? Okay. What does it mean to encourage someone? To instill courage. Right? So so often we talk about encourage. Sadly enough, we usually mean lie to them about how good they are because they're not really that good. Make them feel better about themselves and usually in a false way. Okay? Call it good parenting. But really, the concept of encouraging is to encourage. Someone walks away and says, I am, I have more courage than I've ever, that's to encourage. Not I feel better about myself, but I am in, I've got courage in me because of the, I would argue, the truth that you've just told me about God or about myself. And this is what preaching should be. And you should expect better from your preachers here at Sunnybrook. You should demand that we do a better job instilling courage in you to live out your faith and stay in your marriage and blah, 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 forgive your friends and follow the Lord. Preaching and to teaching. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift, the charismatos, the gift which was given to him by the laying on of hands. Next imperative, practice these things Immerse yourself in them. Notice these commitment words. Practice them. Immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. This is another thing. Do you realize how much we try to live with this? I don't want anyone to know who I am. I I'm, I'm a humble person. I don't want you to, don't, I don't want to think I'm holier than thou. Please don't think I'm, I'm the worst Christian in the world. I am. I'm the worst Christian in the world. We're all the worst Christians in the world. Aren't you the worst Christian? Yeah, I'm the worst. I'm the terrible Christian. If I hear one more person tell me that they're the worst Christian in the world, I'm going to punch myself in the throat. I mean, it just, it is so ridiculous. It's not the, it's, I, I really would say it's, we don't mean, it, it's not the humility that we should have. At best, it's probably a false humility. And it's so not scriptural to sit there and complain about how bad you are. Now, if you're bad, then tell me what you did that was bad. But don't just talk about being bad. Either genuinely repent of your sin or, or, or find another thing to say. Because look at what he says here. Do these things so that all may see your progress. Like, do your kids see you growing in Christ? Do your, does your life group see you growing in Christ? I love this, the idea of practice these things and immerse yourself in them. I've got the literal right beside it. It says, this is literally in the Greek. These things meditate on, in them be. These things meditate on, in them be. Notice how the be piece becomes a huge part of this text. And why are we this way? So others may see your progress. Jesus says this, that when people see your good works, what do they do? they praise your Father who is in heaven. And then he says, and keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, practice and doctrine. Persist, remain in them, for by, by so doing you will save, future tense, both yourself and your hearers. And before you just get into this crazy, well, of salvation and how does it work, the text is a future tense verb By persisting and remaining in, we will in the future sense save, which really teaches us that saving is a whole lot more about us becoming whole in Jesus Christ than just getting into heaven, which is why, as Paul has said all the way through here, it is good in this life and it is in the next one. For those of us in this room that have delayed a deep desire to do a lot of these imperatives and just kind of list them and kind of think about how much do you practice these things, immerse yourself, how much do you meditate on these things and in these things be? If only we had the same dedication to who God is as we do to our careers and some of our relationships and our hobbies and our sports. Can you imagine? Actually, I can't imagine. Because I actually believe it is where many of us are also going. So take courage, my brothers and sisters, and faithfully pursue Jesus and in him be. Love you guys. God bless. We'll see you Sunday. I got some stuff to say about what it means to be a man. I know you're just dying to hear it.